On today's Murashiro podcast, we're back in New York again. Jessica's up for a writer's award and has to solve the murder of a really mean writer when her friend from Cabot Cove is one of the main suspects. Hello and welcome to the Murder She Wrote podcast where I watch every single episode of the hit 80s slash 90s show, Murder She Wrote, starring three-time Academy Award winner and five-time Tony Award winner, Miss Angela Lansbury. Today I'm going to be talking about Season 1, Episode 17, Footnote to Murder, air date March 10th, 1985. If you are new to the Murder Shiro podcast, I spoil everything there is to spoil about the episode, the murder of suspects, everything in between. So if you've not recently seen this episode, you can watch it one of... Sorry, car alarm. Somebody's car alarm just went off. If you've not recently watched this episode, you can, um, and you're following along with me, get out your Season 1 DVD disc set, insert disc 5 into your DVD player, wherever it is that you play your DVDs. This is the third episode on on disc 5. If you do not own the DVDs, you can still watch the episode for free. Right now, all 12 seasons are streaming for free on the Roku channel with limited commercial interruption, as well as as well as the four TV movies that aired after Murder, She Wrote went off the air. You can also watch the episode for free on IMDb TV with limited commercial interruption. They have seasons one through five. And on NBC's Peacock app, where they have seen all 12 seasons as well, where you can watch them with limited commercial interruption. The show can also be found on Amazon Prime, probably with no commercials. Alright, so I want to um, explain something really important before I start. First, thank you all for your continued support. My numbers didn't go up or down um, in my last episode admitting that I was gay, and I'm glad that you all Still want to continue to listen to me? This is the third time I've attempted to record this episode because I've had, like, technical issues and, as you heard, car alarm going off. I mean, (laughs) but, uh, it's March. I'm going to be publishing this episode probably on the 8th or 9th of March, and I meant to, you know, publish an episode before this, but it's March And it's officially the start of allergy season, so my allergies are really kicking my butt right now. The weather has been crazy here in Kentucky right now. It is um, in the lower 50s. We have like a really fierce wind going on out there. And we have had three days where the temperature has been up, three days where the temperature has been down. And where it's been like nice and somewhere in between, it's, it's been crazy. And with the change of the weather, and with everything going on, allergies, I'm going to try to push through, and there goes that car alarm again. <laughs> I am so sorry. So sorry about that. Um, but I'm going to push, I'm going to try to push through um, and post as many episodes as I can, because I have one 
episode left on disc five and then three episodes left on disc six and I'll be done with season one and we can get on to season two and I won't have to say this anymore. Um, I arrived at, at episode number 17 because when Murder, She Wrote originally aired on September 30th, 1984, it was a pilot movie like so many other shows before it. Boy, oh boy, if they had just... If they had done this with so many shows, it could have saved us a lot of time nowadays. Testing the waters as a movie first before committing as a show. When they sold the show, Murder, She Wrote, into syndication, for some reason they syndicated the pilot movie into two parts, making it episode one and two, and these are listed both on the Roku channel, IMDb, and NBC's Peacock app, so it's really confusing. But the first official episode of Murder, She Wrote was Deadly Lady, you go from there to this, and you arrive at 17, at the number 17. There will be no confusion when we get to season two or any of the other seasons, hopefully. And I uh, looked up if anything interesting happened when this episode aired, and unfortunately nothing did, but... A couple days before, on March 8th, 1985, the movie Mask was released with Cher as the mother of a deformed uh, kid and Estelle Getty as Cher's mom. I love that movie. Cher should have got the Academy Award for that movie. She was so good the way that she fought for him and everything. It was just so great. Really great movie. Alright, so let's dive into this episode. I know it by heart now, because it's the third time that I have recorded this episode. Um, so, I know it by heart, and hopefully this time you guys will get to, get to hear it. Because I have been trying. But I, like I said, I've had technical difficulties, but I'm pushing on. Alright. So, oh, and uh, this episode is set in New York. The first episode set in New York is Broadway, my lady. But like that episode, this episode is not actually in New York. It was filmed on a universal backlot, and it's painfully obvious. And the pilot movie started off in New York, but was more like later on on the outskirts. And you might occasionally hear wind chimes. I have like a wind chime outside and I have the door open because it's hot up here. I live in an upstairs apartment and sometimes it gets like really hot up here because my neighbor's heat rises and and I was hot so I needed the door open. So sorry if you occasionally hear that as well. Alright, let's dive into it because this episode... It's really interesting, but also really crazy with them. I'm not a big, huge fan of this episode because of the motive of the killer. Let's get into it. So we start off with stock footage, just like we did in Broadway Milady, only this time it's raining. And I would totally call this episode the case of the mismatch umbrellas because everybody gets everybody else's umbrella. It is amazing. So... After seeing that beautiful stock footage of New York, we find ourselves at the Lexington Avenue Diner. I don't know if this is a real thing in New York. I've never been there before, but I'm assuming it's not because this was not filmed in New York. 
And we see a man sort of sitting by himself in this diner. There's a voiceover of some poetry. It's kind of terrible, so I'm not going to tell you what he, what it is. But he's sitting there, and he's writing it down, and I guess it's not going well. And then he takes out what appears to be a gun. And suddenly, Jessica is standing there, and she says, Oh, Horace. If you're going to kill yourself, you should just wait. Those cigarettes will do it for you. <laughs> it's a cigarette lighter. The gun is a cigarette lighter. And she sits down, and this is Horace Lynchfield. Apparently, him and Jessica used to be friends in Cabot Cove, but he lives in New York now. The reason why she's in New York in this episode is because she's up for a writer's award for mystery. And he's up for a poetry award because he writes poetry. She asks him if he's writing anything right now and he says yes and he, he says it to her which is about death and despair and she's like, eh, you know, not so great. He crumbles it up and throws it on the floor which is not cool. And then he says, well, shall we go to this drab party? And she says, sure, lead the way. And we notice that his umbrella has a distinguished design on it that we will notice later in the episode. Meanwhile, across town, we, get in a, we find ourselves in some strange man's apartment. He has come home with a bag of groceries in his hand. He sits the groceries on his table and takes out a carton of milk. Remember when milk used to be in a carton? Boy, do I feel old. He opens the carton of milk and drinks out of it, which, ew. But if he's the only one who lives there, then I guess it's fine. He notices the paper sitting on the table, and he opens it. And we see that there's an article of a Hemsley Post publishing a new novel about the Vietnam War. This seems to upset the man. Meanwhile, we cut to another apartment across town where the rain is falling like you wouldn't believe, and it was doing that yesterday. We had thunderstorms and everything last night. It was amazing. This is the author we saw on the newspaper article. This is Hemsley Post, a very heavyset-looking dude who is doing push-ups when there's a knock at the door. It's a woman named Jean Harlow. She is apparently in charge of the awards committee, and Mr. Post is apparently going to be a presenter, and she wanted to go over exactly what he was supposed to say and do, because apparently the awards ceremony is not tonight, but in a couple weeks or something. I'm not entirely sure about the timeline here. Of this episode. He immediately starts trying to seduce her, pouring her a drink and talking all nonchalant and sexy like, trying to get her to stay and even and they share a drink together when there's a knock at the door. It's his wife, Alexis ex wife. Miss Harlow immediately leaves and and returns the drink. 
She tells him that she wants a $25,000 advance on his new book, which happened to be on his bed, but he quickly locks it up in a briefcase where only he has the key. Remember that. He tries to sweet-talk Alexis as well, but she tells him that she would rather remember things as they were. And she leaves out the door. Meanwhile, we find ourselves now at a hotel where this party is taking place, and we get introduced to Adrian Winslow, an author who is talking to a reporter, Mr. Winslow, is a historical author and very obviously a homosexual. And he is played by Robert Reed. If you don't know the name, this man played the role of Mr. Brady on The Brady Bunch in every incantation of The Brady Bunch except for The Brady Bunch movie, which made fun of The Brady Bunch. But anyway... He is talking to a reporter saying that he finds the romantic genre to be complete drivel, that he enjoys history and enjoys writing historical novels because he feels that they are the most contemporary writing that anyone can do. He's very British, very prim and proper. Suddenly a woman, woman stops him in the lobby and asks him for his autograph. He gives it to her, no problem, and then she tries to give him her short story. But he says, my dear, my publisher says, not for me to read unsolicited manuscripts. He puts his hand on the reporter and says, what magazine did you say you were from? Uh, it does not matter. And they go off. Meanwhile, Mr. Post is in the restroom washing his hands when that strange man from earlier in that scene where he drank milk out of the milk carton comes in. This is Frank Lepowski, and apparently he's not too happy with Mr. Post. He's been trying to get a hold of him for some reason. He goes as far as to grabbing Mr. Post when Mr. Post refuses to even listen to him. A man walks into the the bathroom, and he says, go get security. Mr. Lepowski tells Mr. Post that this will not be the last time you hear from me. I ought to kill you, Post. He goes away. And the security guard comes in, and when Mr. Lepowski sees the security guard, he punches him and knocks him down and runs out the bathroom. Mr. Post tells the security guard, Oh, don't worry, he didn't take anything. But he did punch a security guard. I mean, he should go to jail for that. But no, okay. Meanwhile, Horace and Jessica arrive at the hotel, and that same woman who got Mr. Winslow's autograph asks for Jessica's. Jessica introduces Horace Lynchfield, but Debbie doesn't seem to care. Her name is Debbie. And Mrs. Fletcher agrees to read her short story. They go into the party, which is in full swing. We have a shot, for some reason, of the window with the rain falling down. 
And Jessica puts her umbrella in her coat among everyone else's umbrella and coats. She's wearing a nice black dress in this episode. Nothing that she looks like she borrowed from Little Orphan Annie. Thank goodness. Mr. Winslow is talking to Lucinda Lark, who apparently has just released a new book called Woman Unleashed. He said, well, the masses find it quite interesting. She said, well, they told me to write about what I know, so I did. And she said, but my next book is going to be real literary. I'm reading all the great works, A to Z. And Mr. Winslow says, oh, and where are you right now, Aristotle? She apparently doesn't find this funny and decides to walk away. Meanwhile, Jessica and Horace are sort of standing around talking when Miss Jean Harlow comes up next to them. Horace tries to start talking to her, but she doesn't find him to be all that interesting at all. He gives her a drink, but she walks away. When she sees Mr. Post talking, Mr. Post is standing among a group of men talking about his latest novel. And everyone in the room seems to be fascinated by him. He says that he's always been fascinated by the Vietnam War, and he wanted to write about it. Mr. Winslow suddenly comes into the conversation and says, Well, as far as I remember, you were a correspondent for Playboy. You didn't serve in, in the Vietnam War. Why would you want to write about it? He said, well, at least it's not that drivel that you write. Prancy Greek boys prancing about. Sissy Greek boys prancing about or something of that effect. And he says, well, the difference between you and I is at least I get published. You haven't published a novel in over eight years. And then he says something weird. He says, Mr. Post says, Ten years ago, I recall when you were my apprentice, that I gave you a good thrashing. Don't think I won't do it again. And Mr. Winslow says, Ten years ago, I didn't have a black belt. Uh, okay, that was a really weird exchange. And he, sa and he says, As far as I know, you, I've heard that your novel is so bad, you refuse to even let your publisher read it. And he says, well, the only copy is locked upstairs in my briefcase, and only I have the key. I don't know why he would tell everybody that. I seriously don't. But he does. Meanwhile, Horace is saying poetry to Lucinda Lark, who seems to find it stimulating to say the least. She's like, Oh, I have goosebumps. What does it mean? I don't have the slightest. Mr. Post notices Lucinda Lark and wants to talk to her and tries to get her away from Horace. She tells him, and he says, Well, I wanted to sign a copy of my book. That you have. And Horace says. I didn't really like that one. 
And he says, oh, too much blood and gall for you, Lynchfield. And he says, no, too much bad grammar. And then Mr. Post punches him. And a fight ensues until Horace takes out his lighter, which is shaped like a gun and everybody thinks he has a gun. Jessica is able to break up the fight and everything goes back to normal. And we cut to the very next day. Jessica has accidentally gotten Mr. Post's umbrella by mistake. And she knocks on his hotel door. A strange man answers, but it's not Mr. Post. She says, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm looking for Mr. Post. I think I got his umbrella by mistake. His umbrella. Perhaps he got mine. And he says, well, why don't you come in and find out? As Jessica walks into the room, Mr. Post has been, is dead stabbed through the chest with Horace's umbrella with the distinguished design on it. Dun dun dun! This is D.A. Male Comberstock played by Pat Harrington Jr. A.K.A. T.B. Snyder. From the original One Day at a Time. Woohoo! He will make his first of many appearances on Murder, She Wrote. And we also get introduced to our investigator, Lieutenant Cooper, played by Ron Mersker, who will go on to play Sheriff Mersker later on in Murder, She Wrote, in a small, tiny role in this episode. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that great? I just love that. Jessica immediately begins to start investigating. She mentions the manuscript of Mr. Post's latest novel, noticing that it's missing, and of course because he said at the party that he had the only copy locked away in a briefcase, Lieutenant Cooper says, we didn't find any briefcase, ma'am. The DA, Mr. Mel Comberstock, is a very arrogant man and wants to handle the case personally due to the publicity attached to it as he's currently trying to run for the state DA. He's very obnoxious and very rude, not wanting any advice from Mrs. Fletcher to try to solve the crime at all. She notices that there's a pair of glasses on the bed, and she picks them up and wonders what he was reading. She also notices a key to, a ho to another hotel room on the nightstand. She slowly begins going through stuff as the DA is talking to the press, telling them that he's got a big one, 
The famous author, Mr. Post, has been murdered, stabbed through the heart with an umbrella. Apparently there was, like, a sword or something inside this umbrella. Um, no explanation is ever given about that. Eventually, Mr. Comberstock has Mrs. Fletcher leave, sticking the glasses she found on Mr. Post's bed in her purse, thinking that they are hers. Later that day, Mr. Comberstock has brought Horace Lynchfield in for questioning because it was his umbrella that basically was seen, was used as the weapon. Mrs. Letcher kindly points out to Mr. Comberstock that anyone could have picked up that umbrella because obviously she picked up Mr. Post's umbrella by mistake. So, if it could happen to her, it could happen to anyone. But he refuses to listen to her. Horace claims that he was drunk all night and can't remember exactly where he went. And it's quite possible that he could have killed him, but he doesn't remember. Mr. Comberstock thinks this is a bonafide confession and decides to go ahead and book Horace for murder. Then he gets on the phone and starts talking about how he nailed the case and how everything is hunky-dory and all and all that. And Mrs. Fletcher gets up behind his back and says, Horace Lynchfield did not kill this man and if you refuse to be arrogant and stupid to find the murderer, then I will. And she walks out. Meanwhile, Horace is put in an elevator by himself when uh, Lieutenant Cooper and Jessica are talking. She says, I don't like that man. I don't understand why he has to be like that. And he says, well, we all don't like him, ma'am. Everybody knows that his motives are pretty much he's trying to run for assistant DA. So he's a media personality. He doesn't really care about solving the crime. Well, I do. And then Horace gets stuck in the elevator. When he gets out of the elevator, he gets put into a group of people who apparently have been arrested for prostitution. The judge apparently just wants to see the prostitutes and not the customers. So, mistakenly, he is sent home. Meanwhile, Jessica decides to solve the murder, and she runs in the lobby, Jean Harlow. She tells Jean what happened, and she says, I, I feel so bad for Mr. Post, and she said, and poor Horace, I don't think he did it, and she says, I don't either. Is there anything that you can tell me that might help me to get him off? She said, well... Because it turned out that the hotel key they found was hers. She claims that because she told Mr. Comberstock at the beginning of the scene, sorry, um, before Horace is arrested, 
that she was supposed to meet him. He was supposed to go to her room instead of her going to his, but he never showed up. She also claims that she spent the evening at dinner with Mr. Winslow. She runs into Miss Fletcher in the lobby and she says, Was there anything more that you can tell me that might help me to get Horace off? And she tells Jessica about Alexa coming over, Alexis coming over, and basically demanding money from him when he publishes the book. Sorry, sirens. Um, so, as she... So Jessica tracks down Alexis, who is a fashion designer, and basically Alexis first says that she has not talked to Mr. Post in a while, and then when Mrs. Fletcher confronts her about the money she asked f from him, she's like, how did you know about that? She's like, I'm not going to divulge my, uh, my sources. But I know that you were there. She said, yes, I did. But it's all for naught now, because obviously he's not going to write it. And she said, and also, Mrs. Fletcher, let me tell you something. He wasn't just burned out on writing. He was burned out on every, a lot of other things, too. He couldn't perform, if you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, boy. Meanwhile, meaning he was all talking, no action. Aha. So with this information, well, she really doesn't, she really can't do anything with this information. She says, okay. So, the word is let out that Horace is now on the run because he's not locked up in custody. But when Mrs. Fletcher goes back to the hotel, Horace happens to be going into the hotel, or coming out of the hotel while Mrs. Fletcher is going in. And she says, Horace, what are you doing here? So... They go back to the police station and Mr. Comberstock accuses him of running away and he says, I didn't run away. I was suddenly put into this lineup of people and I was told I was allowed to go and Mrs. Fletcher says, you lost him. <laughs> but Lucinda Lark happens to be there and she says that she signed Mr. Post's book a a couple days before, but messed up the dates. Then she says that she spent the most fabulous, romantic, sex-filled evening with a wonderful man. And Mr. Comberstock, Jessica, and Horace all go, who? And she says, and she points at Horace and says, you. So, Horace is now cleared, because if he spent the whole night with Lucinda Lark, he couldn't have killed Mr. Post. As they're walking out of the police station, he's like, wow, have I really? How did I spend a whole evening with Lucinda Lark and I can't even remember it? She said, well, Horace, as much as I would not like to kill your fantasy here, but she could be lying saying she spent the evening with you. 
She says, I have to go talk to Mr. Winslow. Adrian Winslow is at a book signing at some place. And Mrs. Fletcher decides to stop and talk to him. She talks about his confrontation with Mr. Post and what exactly it means. And he says, oh, it was all in good fun. He didn't mean anything by it. He didn't kill the old dude, old man. And he says that he spent the whole evening with the wonderful boy, from the reporter from the magazine or whatever. And she said, oh, that's kind of funny, Mr. Winslow, because Jean Harlow said that you and her spent the evening together. Did she now? Well, unfortunately, we did not. And that's the end of that. Meanwhile, Mrs. Fletcher remembers that she saw a letter from a Frank Lepowski in Mr. Post's room, threatening him, so she decides to track him down as well. She finds him unloading boxes at a warehouse, and when she begins asking him questions, he walks away and refuses to answer them. Some random dude who knows him tells her about his idea to write about Vietnam. And Mrs. Fletcher is slowly putting the two together. Meanwhile, later that night, Mrs. Fletcher goes to Jean Harlow's apartment. She appears to be reading a manuscript. We as the audience are supposed to believe that this could be the manuscript from Mr. Post. She lets Jessica in, and she basically tells her that she lied, that she wasn't with Mr. Winslow all night. So why did she lie? She basically explains that she wants to be open her own publishing company, was meeting with some people who might help her with that, but she didn't want the company she worked for to know until she was sure the deal would go through. Mrs. Fletcher noticed her putting away the manuscript and she says, oh, this, this is a biography of a very distinguished celebrity that I'm thinking of publishing. I wouldn't have stolen Mr. Mr. Post's novel. So she is no longer a suspect. Later, as Mrs. Fletcher and Horace are riding in a cab, she's absolutely stumped and has no idea who the murderer could be. When Horace gives her something to read, she goes to take out her reading glasses and immediately notices that those are not her glasses. So she decides to go to an eye doctor to see exactly what kind of glasses those are. It turns out that they are, they are thick bifocals and the person who wears them can barely see. Jessica then puts two and two together and our killer turns out to be, oh, Jessica puts two and two together, and our killer turns out to be Frank Lepowski. He has Mr. Post's manuscript, so all arrows seem to point to him, but he's not the actual killer. No, the actual killer is his sister, Debbie, the girl in the lobby who was asking everyone to read her short story. 
It turns out her short story is about her brother going off to the Vietnam War. This, unfortunately, is why I don't like this episode, because it relies heavily on this fact and this motive. According to Debbie, she asked Mr. Post to read her short story. He had no idea who she was because she had changed her name. She decided not to use her last name of, of Kapowski. She was bound and determined to get the manuscript, her brother's story, back. She had no idea that Mr. Post was going to invite her upstairs. When he did, he flew into some sort of rage and attempted to sexually assault her. And she used the only weapon she had, which was the umbrella. She had no idea that a sword was concealed inside the umbrella, and she accidentally killed him. But this would be hard for a jury to believe. I mean, I've seen enough Law and Order to know, and they brought that back, by the way. Oh, so good. So good so far. But anyway, I've seen enough Law and Order growing up in the 90s that this would be hard to prove because her whole motivation for going upstairs with him was to give her an opportunity to steal the manuscript. We saw the man in two previous scenes attempting to seduce several women, and he got nowhere. And his wife admitted to Mrs. Fletcher that he was burnt out on that sort of thing, so there's no way that he would have been able to perform like that. And why would he fly into a rage with this girl of all people when Jean Harlow, when he was supposed to go see Jean Harlow at her hotel room? It makes absolutely no sense. And it relies heavily on off-screen stuff because it's never made clear that Debbie and Frank Lepowski are brother and sister until the end of the episode. So it makes absolutely no sense. Also, Frank Lepowski is not in the episode enough to establish pretty much anything except that he wrote the book. And apparently the reason why Mr. Post ended up with it was that he wanted him to proofread it. And Mr. Post decided to publish it like he wrote it because he hadn't had a hit in years. So this all relies heavily on stuff that happened off screen before we even start this episode which makes it kind of confusing. This is actually not one of my favorites of season one. But the episode ends with Jessica and Horace both winning in their respective categories and Horace asking him to get some cigarettes but takes out his, his lighter shaped like a gun and the woman behind the counter thinks he's trying to rob her and she pushes a button. And I guess Mr. Cumberstock does not get elected because he didn't solve the crime, but we never see him again. And that's the end of the episode. Let's go over the guest stars. Vincent Baguetta played Frank Lepowski. He died in 2017 at the age of 79. He is known for Charlie's Angels, the original, Hill Street Blues, The Man Who Wasn't There, and Remington Street. His last known 
Credit is 1995 in Renegade. He was on Days of Our Lives. NYPD Blue. Oh, and he will be in two other episodes of Murder, She Wrote. So we'll go over more of his credentials when we get there. Tara Blassam played the role of our murderer, Debbie. I can't say her name right, and I apologize so badly. She looks familiar, but... Yeah, she looks familiar, but she didn't look familiar in the episode. She is known for Mad Men, the TV series, Divorce, a TV series, No Strings Attached with Ashton Kutcher, and the Wackness? Wackness? Okay. Her last known credit is this year in something called Master. Uh, okay. She guest starred on The Good Wife, Elementary, Homeland, Nurse Jackie, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, Without a Trace. That was a good show. Third Watch. That was a good show. Ally McBeal, L.A. Doctors. The original Law and Order, Touched by an Angel, Mad About You, Jake and the Fat Man, and she will appear in another episode of Murder, She Wrote. So we'll go over more of her credentials then. Next guest star is Morgan Brittany as Tiffany Harlow. She is known for Gypsy as Baby June, 1962, Gabble and Lebrard, the original Dallas, and Yours, Mine, and Ours, 1968. Her last known credit is Americanizing Shelley. She guest starred on Doc with Billy Ray Cyrus, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Silk Stockings, Melrose Place is Mackenzie Hart. Oh, that's why she looked familiar. She died when the apartment got blown up by Kimberly. And she will appear in another episode of Murder, She Wrote in 1990, so we'll go over more of her credentials then. Constance for... For... Where Lund played Lucinda Lark, I'm so sorry. She's still alive. She is known for Village of the Dam, 1995, River Judge, 1986, The Way We Were, 1973, and Baby Boom. Her last known credit is something called Avenue 43. I don't know what that is. Never heard of that. She guessed her own castle, ER. Thirty something. This is her only episode of Murder She Wrote. She was on Days of Our Lives as Abigail Duncan, The Love Boat, Magnum PI, Chips, It's a Living, Trapper John MD, Taxi, Love That, One Day at a Time. 
the doctors, that was a soap opera, and one life to live. So she had quite the career. Sad she didn't come back. Pat Parlington played the annoying DA, and like I said, I know he'll appear in a couple other episodes. He died in 2016 at the age of 86. He is known for, of course, one day at a time. The President's Analyst, Alfred Hitchcock, presents and Move Over Darling. His last known credit was doing voiceover work for As Told by Ginger. He guest starred on Hot in Cleveland, The King of Queens, Carb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, he's in one of my favorite two movies, These Old Broads. Fantasy Island remake. Did some voiceover work for... Ah, Real Monsters. Weird show. Empty Nest. The Golden Girls. I don't remember him being on The Golden Girls. But he will be in a handful of other episodes on Murder, She Wrote. So like I said, we will go over more of his credentials then. Kenneth Mars played Hemsley Post, our murder victim. And I have seen him before. He died in 2011 at the age of 75. He is known for... Young Frankenstein. That's where I've seen him from. He did some voiceover work for The Little Mermaid, 1989, as Triton. The Producers, the original 1967, and What's Up Doc 1972 with Barbara Streisand. His last known credit is the TV series The Land Before Time, where he did voiceover work for the Grandpa Longneck. I love that. You guys start on Hannah Montana. He did Kingdom Hearts, King Triton. It was on Malcolm in the Middle, All the Land Before Times, I Love the Land Before Times, Will and Grace, The Legend of Tarzan. He did some voiceover for that. Buckner, or Becker, sorry, Just Shoot Me, How to Marry a Millionaire, Christmas Tale, Ugh. Little Mermaid 2, Godzilla, the cartoon series. He did a lot of voiceover work. Um... In cartoons like Life with Louie, um, Cow and Chicken, weird show, weird show. He was in Police Academy, the series, The Drew Carey Show, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, Party of Five, I like that show, The Pink Panther, uh, Show, Batman the Animated Series, love that. Diagnosis Murder, The Little Mermaid television show. Mighty Max, L.A. Law. Evening Shades, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine. We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, Animaniacs. Rugrats, haha. <laughs> I love Rugrats. Captain Planet and the Planeteers, love that. Tom and Jerry, A Different World. Darkwing Duck. Oh, awesome dude. Apparently there was a cartoon series based on New Kids on the Block. I didn't know that. 
Tiny Toon Adventures, Perfect Strangers, 227, love that show, DuckTales, The Smurfs, wow, A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, I love that, I love that show, The Adventures of Raggedy Ann and Andy, oh boy, The Flintstone Kids, wow, this dude had an awesome career. Simon and Simon, Teen Wolf TV series uh, in the 80s, not the other one. The 13th Ghost of Scooby-Doo. Oh my god, I love that. The Twilight Zone. Remington Street. This is his only episode of Murder, She Wrote. But I love that he did so many voiceovers for cartoons. Awesome. The original Magnum P.I., the new Scooby-Doo Mysteries, Chapter Dawn M.D., Cagney and Lacey, Mork and Mindy Laverne and Shirley Fawn's Hour TV show, TV cartoon, Alice, The Richie Rich Scooby-Doo Show, wow, I mean, this dude had a long, long career, good for him. Unfortunately, it's sad that he had to play this, like, character, but I loved Grandma, or Grandpa Little Long Neck. He was so cool. I don't know if I want to go over Ron Mitzka's thing just yet, because I know he ends up playing the sheriff later on, so I'm not going to do that. Um, Alexis Post was played by Diana Moller. Moller, I can't pronounce her last name, I'm so sorry. She is still alive, and she's known for McLeod, L.A. Law, Chosen Survivors, 1974, and Star Trek, The Next Generation. Her last known credit is Batman, the animated series as Dr. Leslie Thompson's. Uh, is that, um, that's Poison Ivy, right? Awesome. Love that. Empty Nest. Perry Mason, the case of the fatal fashion. Madlock. This is her only episode of Murder, She Wrote. She guest started in a lot of mystery shows like The Incredible Hog, Quincy M.D. She was in the TV movie The Miracle Worker with Patty Duke and Melissa Gilbert. Good for her. And as I said before, Robert Reed played the role of Adrian Winslow, the obvious homosexual writer. He died in 1992 at the age of 59. You know, it's really sad <clears throat> that he was gay and he didn't get to be himself. He had to be this ideal guy. 
And remember 90s kids or 90s adults, whatever they call us now, when E! first came out, the channel E! They would have those E! True Hollywood stories. Well, that's how I found out he was gay. I had no idea. And um, it's sad. You know, him and Flores Henderson were from theater backgrounds. And unfortunately, their careers got boosted because of Brady Bunch. But also got not so great you know, because of the Brady Bunch, because they were supposed to be these ideal parents. And as he proved in this episode, if he's given some good material, he can he can act his butt off. But unfortunately, he was often typecast. Of course, he's known for the Brady Bunch, the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, which they all hated doing, Rich Man, Poor Man, and Roots. In a very small role in that. His last known credit before his death is Jake and the Fat Man. He will appear in two other episodes of the of Murder She Wrote. I mean, to give you an idea of how bad it was for the cast of the Bradys, they literally kept bringing them back for TV movies, and then in the nineteen like the early in early 1990 they tried to have them be a soap opera and i think as i recall marsha 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 ends up having a drinking problem i mean they tried to make it dramatic and it was just odd just very odd and i wish he could have done some awesome stuff he was a really good actor and I know Flores Henderson shows up on Murder, She Wrote, too, and I can't wait for that. And Horace Lynchfield was played by Paul Sand. And we got sirens going on again, people. I'm so sorry. He is still alive. He is known for Ernie, Indiana. Oh, I don't know what that is. The Hot Rock, 1972. Sweet Land, 2005. And Can't Stop the Music, 1980. Apparently that's one of the biggest box office bombs in the world. Um, he is doing some sort of project right now called Lauren and Rose. It is completed but has not been released. Um, his last known movie is Adam and Steve. <laughs> he guest starred on Carve Your Enthusiasm. Sliders. Dorma and Grey, Supreme of the Teenage Witch, The Secret World of Alex Mack, Weird Show, The X-Files, L.A. Law, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, The Trials of Rosie O'Neill, never heard of that. Oh, apparently Ernie Indiana was a TV show, never heard of it. True Colors, Night Court, that was hilarious. Baby Talk, Empty Nest, Quantum Leap, that was good. 30-something, Teen Wolf 2, The Twilight Zone, Who's the Boss, Give Me a Break as Marty. I uh, can't remember. It's a Living, Magnum P.I. Had Three Lives, this is his only episode of Murder, She Wrote. Cadney and Lacey, St. Elsewhere, Love Boat, Alice, Gloria, Laverne and Shirley, Taxi, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Can't Stop the Music as Steve Watts. Fantasy Island, Wonder Woman, The Great Bank Hoax. 
He had a good career. Oh, he was in the original Bewitched as well. TV show. Alright, that's all our guest stars. And... They say in the trivia for this episode that the characters of Himley's, Himley's Post, an aggressive macho writer of war stories in Adrian Winslow, a whippish, perhaps homosexual author of historical novels, may be intended as outrageous caricatures of the real-life writers Norman Mailer and Gore Vandal, whose long-standing literary feud had been very much in the news shortly before this was filmed. The name Post... For the mailer character is another clue. Future series regular as Cabot Cove Sheriff Mortmanser Ron appears as Lieutenant Meyer in this episode. Yep, I enjoyed this episode. And the next episode that I get to do is Murder Takes the Bus, one of my all-time favorite episodes of season one due to the feel of it being like an Attica Christie novel. So, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And I hope you have a good day, night, depending on whenever you listen to this, and that your allergies are not acting up as bad as mine are. And I hope everybody stays safe out there, and I pray for peace for the people who are being... Um, hurt right now by Russia and Ukraine. My thoughts and prayers go out to all of you there. And I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Happy crime solving, everyone, and I will see you in the next one.